0: Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk Do take up your Bibles again. And turn to Mark 14. <clears throat> now, have you ever had to overcome a, a load of problems to get to a celebration or party, but still managed it? And I was amazed when my sister was celebrating her 21st. One of her mates came back all the way from New Zealand... You know, crossing thousands of miles, a crazy kind of clock change just to be there. Um, celebrations, meals together, they're momentous moments to be um, together for, aren't they? They're wonderful things. And in that, uh, that idea of a celebration, there's an imprint of a, a deeper truth for us. God hasn't made us to be alone, but to be together, to be with one another, and most importantly, together. With him, and here in Mark 14, God wants us to see what length He has gone to to make it happen. Now, here in our passage, we're we're right in the last week of Jesus' life, heading to the cross. It's the decisive moment that has actually sat as a shadow over virtually the whole of Mark's gospel. Right from chapter three, we knew of the plot to kill Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians have been planning this. They've been working towards it for three years. Uh, The chief priests and the scribes, they're now in on it too. And last week, if you remember we saw the final piece of the puzzle. One of the twelve, Judas Iscariot. For money he's willing to hand him over. Now, that's one plot going on in this final week. There's another one going on. Jesus knew he was going to die. He predicted it three times back in chapters 8, 9 and 10. And more than that, he knew he must die. That he had come to serve. Come to give his life as a ransom for many. This was his purpose. So we've got these two plots. One of human wickedness, planning to kill an innocent man. The other of utter divine grace, heading to death for a purpose. Both heading to this same point, the same monumental event. And Mark, he's, he's moving back and forward between them. He's just spoken about Judas, then he goes on to Jesus' plans, and then in the middle of our passage he goes back to Judas, and then he goes back to God's purpose. He's, he's, he's drawing us in, he's making us question, how is this all going to work out? Why? Why is the cross such a focus of what's going on? So as we move through these events, we'll see, we'll see more of what God is up to. In Jesus' death. He'll, he'll open it up like, like opening up a treasure chest. Letting the rubies and the diamonds sparkle. And our, our passage today culminates in an extraordinary picture of what it's all for. Uh, but Mark doesn't spoil the surprise. So neither will I. First, he, he wants us to see how uh, he gets this death. How God gets this death to happen. And God does it against all the odds. Against all the odds. Now, um, as we, as I said with the children earlier, on the calendar for God's people was Passover. Passover was uh, when the Jews remembered being freed from Egypt. The first Passover. Uh, that moment when their forebears back in Egypt itself had killed, had eaten this lamb, spread the, the lamb's blood on the doorpost. So the angel of death would pass over them. Yet killing the Egyptian firstborn sons they ate unleavened bread that's bread without yeast as we've said because there was no time no time for wait to it for it to rise they were ready to leave and ever since then hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago god command uh, commanded by god himself jews were to remember that great redemption to have a meal together in remembrance of all that god had done now often it was quite a choreographed meal It could have certain moments of of psalm singing, of question and answer, of prayer. And so Jesus and his disciples are to celebrate it together. And Jesus, he's done everything to make sure he and his disciples get to eat it together. Now you have to remember, Jesus at this point is a wanted man. And so if he's actually going to get to eat the Passover, he's got to keep things on the down low. He's got to have a safe place that the public don't know about. Not not only does he not head into town in daylight, you see he goes in the evening, but he's also keeping the address quiet, perhaps to keep it from Judas at this point. But against all those problems, he's got everything ready somehow. Two disciples, they've got to find a man carrying a water jar, presumably a servant who's going to take them to a house where the master of the house will show them the right room. Then they can get the room and the meal ready. And that's exactly what they find. Jesus, he's sorted it all, all the details. He's planned this meal. He really wants to celebrate this last supper, this Passover celebration with his disciples, undisturbed. Against all the odds, he makes it happen. But this is not just true of the meal. So it's evening. Dusk has fallen. The two disciples, they've got things ready. And the rest arrive. And they start to enjoy the Passover meal together. You can imagine they, re- they reclined in those days. They lay down on their sides, uh, perhaps starting to just ha- start the meal. And Jesus turns the conversation to a shocking topic. Now for us as the reader, we know about Judas. This isn't a surprise for us, but it is for the rest of them. Verse 18, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now imagine the horror in the room. Hushed voices. They're they're trying to guess. People looking around nervously to spot who's got the guilty face. You know, Jesus, he's meticulously put this meal together to share with his disciples. It's a moment of intimacy, of friendship. And yet there's something deeply wrong at this meal. Someone there is about to turn on Jesus, to hand him over to those who want to kill him. And they all start wondering, is it me? Is it I? Surely not. Surely not. But this isn't a surprise for Jesus. He knows. He knows this is part of how the Christ will come to the death he must face. He predicted this handing over, this betrayal earlier in Mark's Gospel and predicting it now shows his deep certainty of what's to happen. God's Word. It's the powerful agent here. Uh, So he says, verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is how it must be. God has spoken of all that must happen, and so it will happen to him. When God speaks, it happens. So, uh, so too with this word about the Son. God has spoken that Christ must suffer for the sins of his people. God has spoken that the one who shares food with him will betray him. And so it will be. Everything is organized. Jesus not only had the meal all in hand, he had the coming days in hands. He's utterly control. This must happen. But here we see God's extraordinary power. His sovereign hand means that he will always fulfil his purposes, even against all the odds. Because what's astonishing is this he does it even through the wicked schemes of Judas and the religious leaders. He can he can even use people set against him. That's the kind of power we're dealing with. You know, it's a bit like a, a rugby player who can use the strength of the opposition to his advantage. Now, some of you may be surprised that I did actually play rugby. I'm a little bit on the small side now. Um, but imagine imagine a player heading towards the line. Ball in hand, he's closing in on scoring a try, and then the hits start coming in. Okay, opposition players begin to tackle him. Now, a player of great quality of strength and poise, can somehow divert that tackle, somehow use that power to actually drive him over the line and score the try. He's, he's used what's against him for his own purposes. Utter control of what's in front of him. Against all the odds. And God is using Judas's wicked schemes for his own wonderful purposes. Now that doesn't let Judas off the hook. Verse 21, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now Judas is given chance after chance to change, to not go ahead with this. He knows it's wrong, and Jesus even warns him this final time. But in his sin, in his hard-heartedness, he still goes ahead. He slips out of a meal and heads to get the soldiers Woe to him. That's Jesus saying, Judas, you're utterly responsible for what you're about to do. Yes, God is bringing about what he's always planned. But you have acted wickedly. God will hold you to account. And here we see God's power. He's got it all planned and has the power to use humans set against him. The cause of sin is in us. It's in our hearts. We delight it. We want to do it. We set ourselves against God. But God plans and he uses it for good. So praise God for his power. Without it, the cross wouldn't have happened. Without it, we'd still be dead in our sins. But the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God works it against all the odds. But why? Why is Jesus heading to his death? Why must the Son of Man go as it is written of him? The key question is, what did Jesus' death do? Well, the meal is not over. Jesus wants his disciples and us to really understand this. And he does so by a piece of bread and a cup of wine. Now, what's God uh, planned in Jesus' death? Well, firstly, that barriers are buried. Barriers are buried. During the Passover meal, traditionally the head of the household would stand, he'd give thanks for the bread, he'd break it and would share it out. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He he took the bread, after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to, um, to his disciples. It's a beautiful moment in the proceedings. But Jesus then says something extraordinary. He says, take, this is my body. Take, this is my body. Get what's going on here. This is the Passover. This is the great celebration in the Jewish calendar of what God did many years ago. And what does Jesus do? He turns it on himself. Mark has told us four times in the preceding verses that this is about Passover. And then Jesus takes that and says, it's all about me. Just as As this piece of bread is given to you, so will my body. I will die for you. Now Jesus does this probably at the stage of the meal when they're about to eat the main meal together. The bread, the herbs, the vegetables, the lamb. And so as he takes this bread, he's drawing on all the Passover symbolism. The bread, the lamb, the whole event. And he says, it's about my body, it's about me. Now if we remember the Passover, what happened? A lamb died in the place of the firstborn child. The wrath of God passed over that household because a lamb had died. So Jesus is saying, my body will die in your place. My body will face the wrath of God so that you might go free. Given for you, I, the firstborn son, will die for many. Jesus, when he died, was dying as a substitute. He was dying in the place of others. The lamb at Passover points to him. Killed, so God's wrath passed over. Now this isn't so we would never die on earth at some point in our lives. No, this is much bigger than that. It was paying the eternal punishment, the eternal wrath, shadowed in our earthly death. Here we see the barriers to God are buried. They're gone. In our sin, we remain under judgment of God. That's the barrier, the great wall. But since Jesus died, that barrier to God, our sin and the punishment with it, it's buried. It's gone, it's pulled down, it's smashed. Christ bore the wrath of God at the sins of his people. His people are united to him in such an intimate way. He took their sin and he took their punishment He the innocent one, we the guilty. Forgiveness of our rebellion against God. Freedom from the power of sin and death. It came at a price. It came at the price of Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, facing God's wrath against humans in his human flesh and actually dying. And so the barriers are buried. Now this is important. Jesus Christ needed to die for you. In our cultural moment, at the moment we struggle to say we need anything outside of ourselves. The answer, the strength, the truth, it's all found inside me. But that's not true. We need a saviour. We need someone to die in our place to pay the price for our sin. Because we can't make it right. We can't earn our way back to God. There's a beautiful song called Redemption by the band Muse Uh, and they say this, why can't we start it over again? And we'll be good. This time we'll get it right. It's the last chance to forgive ourselves. Is that what we need? Just another chance But God says, no, it's not you forgiving yourselves that you need. It's not you trying to make it right this time that you need. Starting it over in your own strength won't make the difference. You need me. You need salvation. You need the planned death of Jesus Christ in your place. The barriers buried. That means we come to God empty-handed, don't we? We come knowing we contribute nothing except our sin." We need Jesus. Knowing his wrath is born, taken away, it means we can come to God secure. We can come with our sin and bring it to the light. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin, for my my selfishness, my anger, my gossip, my judgmentalism. Judas was the opposite. In the face of Christ's warning, he hid his sin. He didn't own up to the wrong he was planning. Instead, he headed into the night. To find backup. Rather than in the light. He went into the shadow of darkness. But Christ's death means. We can live in the light. We can bring our sin into the light. Humble and free. Knowing there's forgiveness. The punishment taken. The barriers are buried. Now that was his body. But then his blood. And His blood is saying something to us as well. It's teaching us our fellowship is fixed our fellowship is fixed jesus picks up the cup of wine and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many now during the passover meal like a cup of wine would be passed around a few times and like the bread jesus takes this cup and he re-centers it on him but he does so not just with passover imagery Not just the blood of the lambs, he also goes further into Exodus. By using the phrase blood of the covenant, he's pointing to another blood. To the blood of sacrifices that was used to to ratify, to authorize the covenant, the agreement between God and man. It all happened at Mount Sinai. If you remember, God's people, they'd been rescued from Egypt. Through the death of that Passover lamb, they escape. And after that, they come to the mountain. Mount Sinai, deep in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, between Egypt and Israel. And God gave them there the Ten Commandments, the covenant law. And then the people made a number of sacrifices. And listen to what happened next. This is from uh, Exodus. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant That's all the laws and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood. He threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's a bit of a strange uh, thing to our modern ears, isn't it? What was going on? Well, God, in that blood was binding people to him. God himself, he's symbolized by the altar, and these people, they're sprinkled with the same blood. And so they're bound together. It's a symbol that their fellowship, their relationship is fixed. It's a, bit, a little bit like a, a couple giving and receiving wedi- uh, rings at their wedding. They're symbols of this covenant. Symbols that they're shared by both bringing them Together and here it's the blood, blood of sacrifices, tying God and people together in a covenant. And this is God's covenant. He's He's binding these people to Himself, He's making them His. He's their King, they're His people. He's fixing what's wrecked. So for Jesus, let's go back to the Passover meal, Jesus to say, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Why? He's saying, I am the culmination of it all. God p- binding his people to himself fully and truly, but, n- but not bound through the blood of goats or bulls, but through the blood of the Son of Man, the Son of God. Jesus is saying, through my blood poured out, through my death of sins for many, fellowship with God is fixed. He's bringing a people to himself. He's doing everything to make it possible. Not only barriers buried, but fellowship fixed. Not only is our sin taken away, but we're brought close. Everything's done. You know, imagine a teenager going off traveling, okay? But then, this is worst-case scenario, okay? Just be minds at rest. But worst-case scenario, they find themselves stuck in a foreign country, they've got no money, and there's a civil war raging around them, okay? But imagine, imagine a parent who does everything to get them back. There's no stone left unturned. They work the miracles with the diplomats. They somehow get money to the right places. They find transport and food for that dear child. They arrive in a pickup truck in the midst of it all and they get them back home. They've done everything. Christ does everything for us. Everything in his death. But where's this all heading? His death has been planned, yes. It deals with our deep problem of sin, and it brings us to God, but what for? Well this is the extraordinary conclusion of this passage. It's all for a future feast. It's for a future feast. Have a look at the end of verse twenty five end of the passage verse twenty-five. Jesus says this Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus has Two big events in his calendar. Okay, as we've seen his death, but also his glory. There's something to happen after Jesus' death. He will drink wine again, but in glory. It's the image of a feast, isn't it? New wine flowing. There's a resurrection glory after the cross. A future feast. Now that kind of image shouldn't surprise us. This whole passage is about Christ eating and drinking with his followers. The Passover meal, it's mentioned again and again by Mark. He introduces every little section with the fact that they're eating together. Verse 18, as they were reclining at table and eating. Verse 22, as they were eating. This is all about a meal together. Jesus even deliberately gives his followers food and drink, bread and wine. And that's the culmination also of what happened in Exodus. Once the blood had been sprinkled on the altar and on the people, the elders went up the mountain. And listen to this, this is amazing. It says, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Christ's death is not the end in itself. It's the horrific means to a glorious end. To take God's people to eat with him. To feast with him. We know eating together, it's such a wonderful blessing in life, isn't it? like we thought at the beginning. It's not a surprise that we celebrate with a meal. Think about Christmas Day. Think about a wedding day or your birthday. We eat together. Now, the food and drink is a wonderful part of it, but they're means of enjoying each other. A celebration is about who you're with more than anything, your friends, your family sitting together. That's the picture of heaven, of the new creation, the culmination of it all, feasting with God. Being with him, our heavenly father, celebrating his victory, his glory, enjoying his presence. He, our host, and we, his guests. That's why, as we'll do in a moment, we take the Lord's Supper together. It comes at the pinnacle of the service. Think of our worship service. We've been called by the Lord. We've confessed our sins. We've received God's word and Preached. We've uh, brought the it's brought the gospel and the covenant to us again, and then it's then we come to the table, God's table. He's the host. He's done everything to make it possible, and so He welcomes us to eat and drink with Him. It's the story of the gospel because it's the story of history. This is our hope as we eat and drink. Uh, as we eat the bread and drink the wine in a moment, we will be reenacting it, pointing us to that future feast when we will eat and drink with Christ in the new creation. It's glorious, isn't it? This is what our hearts long for. Oh, to be with God like this. This is what it's all for. This is why Jesus died, for a future feast. Is this your hope? Is this your longing? To be with God himself forever. Because that's what Jesus has for us. This is what we're made for. So two things just as we finish. Firstly, we must remember that this fellowship with God, this final feast, comes through Jesus. Comes through Jesus. That the bread and wine, their symbols, their signposts, they point to the reality to the whipped, nailed, speared body of Jesus, to his blood poured out on that dusty hillside outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Salvation is only through Jesus and his death. It's his body that died. It's his blood that was poured out. He buried the barriers and fixed the fellowship. To enjoy the feast, we must receive Jesus himself, trust in him alone as our saviour, So if you're not a Christian here today, firstly, you are so welcome to be with us. We really hope you enjoy being with us. But if that's you, I hope you can hear both the welcome and the challenge of Jesus. If you want to come to know God, to know him, to feast with him, and what a wonderful thing that is. Well, Jesus says, will you come to God God's way? God has made the way through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, through his gift of life. Offered to you, will you trust him? Will you trust him or will you be perhaps more like Judas? Actually in your heart finding a way to kill Jesus and reject God. Because the future feast comes through Jesus. And for all of us that means just eating the bread and drinking the wine Without faith in Christ, without trust, it only adds some carbohydrate to your muscles and alcohol to your bloodstream. It's Jesus that matters. But eating with faith in Christ, well, that's a different story. Jesus loves to assure us of his love, just as he did with the disciples. He, he loves to point us to all he's done for us, how he's planned it, how he's died in your place, how he binds us to God. So as we eat and drink the bread and wine later, as we eat it and drink it in faith in Christ, Jesus seals his glorious covenant to our hearts. It's like a rubber stamp with the word "Mine." written on them, stamped onto our hearts. He encouraged us with himself. It's a glorious thing. And that's why it's only a meal. It's a meal only for believers, for Christians, for those who already belong to Jesus because its benefits come to us through faith. But secondly, this is a future feast. That truth sits over Jesus' table like a, like a cool breeze on a summer's day. We know a lot for the moment. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And that's the same for us. As we come to the Lord's table in a moment, all we eat is a, is a morsel of bread and a sip of wine. Now these are wonderful gifts, gifts from Jesus himself, but they remind us we're not there yet. We're not at the feast yet. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes, there's a future element. We're still waiting. As our mouths chew on the bread, as as we sip on the wine and it slips down our throats, we know that the future feast has begun, yes, but it's also to come. There's a yearning. As we, we sit with the disciples around the table with Jesus, we We long for brighter days, don't we? As Jesus eats what is called the Last Supper, we long for the future feast. We long for days when the fasting will be over. We long for the bridegroom to return to the wedding banquet. We live in a world where the new has begun, but the old still clings on. We have hope in the futility of life. We have light even in the darkness. Jesus died for us. But we wait, we await a future feast to come. And so we pray, come back Lord Jesus. May we drink of the fruit of the vine with you again. Amen.